On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Genesis's Wind and Wuthering. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode, I'm joined by my very good friends, Paul Zotter and Ken Gregory, as we finish out four-man Genesis with Wind and Wuthering. So, gentlemen, Wind and Wuthering. According to our friend Tom, who couldn't be with us here tonight, his favorite Phil Collins singer-era Genesis album. Hmm. Wow, why use up that mojo so early in the catalog? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, and and I find that interesting, and I'm very, very sad that Tom could not be with us here tonight, because... Yeah, and let's just just call him out on it, right? Because he did his fucking taxes tonight, instead of... (laughs) Like, where is is the priorities? It's the fucking middle of March. He's got a whole month. He does have a whole month, you know. I I know, but stop making the podcast seasonal because you know we won't release this till July. <laughs> stop wishing people Merry Christmas, all that shit. Yeah, but a year from now it will be timely, so it'll be fine. <laughs> okay, that's true. <laughs> Ken, last time we talked mostly about 1975 in terms of prog rock context. We're still talking about 1975. Oh, <laughs> there's, there's nothing else going on in 76 besides these two albums. Well, I, I, I realized that we forgot to mention the Steve Hackett solo album, Voyage of the Acolyte. So before we advance too much, let's just acknowledge the fact that Steve was checking out. And it's a great album. Um, I had it on cassette. I listened to it a whole bunch. It influenced me at that uh, musical level. I suppose I was in my late teens, early 20s, uh, with all this material. And I particularly remember Steve being out there, and I could listen to that, uh, not in the same way as Genesis, but in almost like a more exploratory vibe. In 1976... They were Busy Bees uh, with uh, two albums, uh, this one being in December. Yeah, and, uh, and it's funny to think that, you know, the the four-man Genesis era lasted a year. <laughs> <laughs> two, yeah. Two albums in 1976, and I guess Seconds Out came out uh, probably in 77, but that's it. Show's over, folks. Right. <laughs> Well, I already talked about Trick of the Tail being in February, very early in the year. And I made a special point of mentioning that in April, uh, 2112 came out. We've got General Giant, Jethro Tull, the Alan Parsons Project, Brand X, Unorthodox Behavior. We've got the first Brand X album. So not only are they going gangbusters, but Phil just can't put the sticks down for a minute. Uh, John Anderson, what John Anderson masterpiece was released in July of 1976? Osias of Son o, o Elias. Elias. <laughs> <laughs> We're having a contest to pronounce this album. Elias of Son Hilo, Manfred mm-hmm. Mann's Earth Band, Electric Light Orchestra, 
uh, Frank Zappa. Steve Howe, Beginnings, first solo album. Because, you know, Steve Hackett did it. Why not Steve Howe? Kansas, Left Overture. Yeah. Uh, Queen, A Day at the Races. Uh, December, you know, Genesis, Wind and Weathering. So I, I, I always apologize whether I say it or not to the folks that I don't read, but you know, we're not particularly versed in Van de Graaff Generator or uh, Soft Machine, but you know, we understand that these bands someday. also, yeah, someday, someday we're, we're getting there. Left Overture, that's uh, that's a bit of a sleeper, I think. I, I mean, everyone knows Carry On Wayward Son. Some people probably know The Wall, but that album mm. is solid from top to bottom, actually. Okay. You know, you brought up Ken Brand X, right? And one of the things that we talked amongst ourselves was Bill Bruford's Big Blue Ball, right? So Bill and Phil crossed paths via Brand X. Oh. So I don't know that they ever played on the same album at the same time, but I was, I was looking into that a little bit and, and they sort of crossed paths in and out of Brand X somewhere around this time. So that may be how they sort of obviously come to know each other, but that it was sort of determined that perhaps Bill would be a good person to handle the drumming duties on touring Genesis, which I just, you know, I find that fun. Oh, very good. Okay. Okay. I so, think the uh, the notation that Steve Hackett was doing his solo albums is kind of important because as I was watching the Genesis interviews for for Trick of the Tail and for Win and Withering and then continuing on into and then there were three in Duke, there there seemed to be this component of Steve Hackett. His little bits weren't really being utilized as much as he would have liked. And there's always some sort of inferiority complex happening with, with Steve Hackett and, and Genesis. And it really is fascinating to hear him talk about it. The reason I bring it up is because later on, when, when and I don't mean to jump too far ahead, but when the band prepares for Duke, all three of them go and do solo albums. And it impacts the way that they record Duke and the way that they write Duke because they've sort of fleshed out all of their other ideas and they're showing up fresh and they're throwing out some, some fun things. And if you think about Hackett being in that position here now, you know, he's kind of through with all his ideas. He's got ideas, but he's sort of doing kind of what he always seemed to do, which is add to everybody else. But Tony shows up with like 12 songs. And I feel like that is, is key to Hackett's sort of departure to the band is that he's already kind of going off and his timing around the solo albums didn't seem to match with everyone else. And if you parallel that with Yes, they all went and did their solo albums and came back and did, you know, Going for the One, which we all know how I feel about that. Yeah, that that is interesting, the way that whole thing goes on. And, and even if, like I said, we talked about it in the Lamb episode, you know, Steve had, you know, certain feelings about that album and his role in it as well. So it wasn't anything new with regard to that. It's a weird sort of dynamic, really. It, it really is. So Wind and Wuthering, as Ken mentioned, released in December of 1976, produced again by David Henschel and Genesis, not David's best work, perhaps, released on the label Charisma and Atco. 
The band lineup consists of Phil Collins on vocals, drums, cymbals, and percussion, Steve Hackett on electric guitars, nylon classical guitar, 12-string uh, guitar, kalimba, and auto harp, Mike Rutherford on 4, 6, and 8-string bass, electric and 12-string acoustic guitars, and bass pedals. And are you ready for this? Tony Banks on Steinway Grand Piano, the ARP 2600 synthesizer, the ARP Pro Soloist synthesizer, Hammond, Mellotron, and the Roland String synthesizer. Um, I was going to give whoever put together that in Wikipedia some grief on being overly specific until I removed my vinyl liner notes from back in the day, mm -hmm. and lo and behold, here is the source material for that very explicit um, instrument list. Mm -hmm. So it's totally legit. Track listing, 11th Earl of Mar, One for the Vine, Your Own Special Way, What Gorilla, All in a Mouse's Night, Blood on the Rooftops, and then Unquiet Slumbers for the Sleepers, In That Quiet Earth, and Afterglow. Wind and Wuthering is the eighth studio album by English progressive rock band Genesis. Um, it was released on 17 December 1976 on Charisma Records and is their last studio album to feature guitarist Steve Hackett. Following the success of their 1976 tour to support their previous album, A Trick of the Tail, the group relocated to Hilvarenbeek in the Netherlands to record a follow-up album, their first recorded outside the UK. Writing and recording caused internal friction for Hackett felt some of his contributions were dropped in favor of material by keyboardist Tony Banks. Mm -hmm. The album received a positive response from critics and contributed to the band's growing popularity in the U.S. It reached number seven in the U.K. and number 26 in the U.S. and sold steadily, eventually reaching gold certification by the British Phonographic Institute and the Recording Industry Association of America. The single, Your Own Special Way, was the band's first charting single in the U.S., reaching number 62. The band's 1977 tour, their last with Hackett, was their first with Chester Thompson, hired as their live drummer. Three tracks left off the album were released during this time as an extended play, Spot the Pigeon. The album was reissued with a new stereo and 5.1 surround sound mix in 2007. There again, we, we touch on some of the uh, the Hackett situation, and by the time they go out to tour for this album, Chester Thompson has joined the family. Now, I was a little disappointed when reading Rutherford's book, because Wind and Wuthering, I think I counted it up, it gets all of about maybe six or eight paragraphs over two or three pages wow. in, in terms of that. Uh, um, there There's just not a whole lot that is said about it. It's it's very funny. There there must be something about these gray album covers, um, because I had a very similar fixation with obtaining this album as I did with obtaining Relayer. Even though in Relayer I knew the Gates of Delirium was on there and I needed to have that, I don't know that I knew much about Wind and Wuthering when I was a young man and decided that I had absolutely had to have Wind and Wuthering. But I I got it and it was it was. I can't explain the, the draw. And for me, Wind and Wuthering, while I've always enjoyed it, I can't say it's ever electrified me 
um, in the way that, say, a duke will do, or, uh, ironically enough, the way the lamb does for me now. And hmm. I think, for me, the production and the sound quality fits very much in line with the album cover. Everything is kind of mushed together. Everything's right in the middle of the road. I made the comment on the, the chat the other day that it, it sort of struck me that sometimes it's, it's difficult to separate the keyboards from the guitars because everything sounds similarly and they're just all sitting on top of each other. It's, it's not like what you had before. I think this album seems somewhat out of sequence. If you were to play these things for me and tell me to put them in order from, you know, oldest to to newest, I probably would, you know, assuming you gave me the lamb as, as an anchor point, I would have guessed it would go um, the lamb, wind and weathering, and then there were three, a trick of the tail, and then Duke is how I would have guessed these albums mm. would go. That doesn't make it bad. This mm. album is is somewhat different in that I think there's a lot more instrumental sections than maybe we're used to. Uh, we have two full instrumental tracks here. So mm. I like it. I, I really, really do. I've always enjoyed this album. It's just, it's a bit of an enigma for me. I can't, I, I want, I really, really want to like it as much as Tom does. I do. I want to to love this album and I enjoy listening to it but it it just doesn't it doesn't move me in the way that some of the other albums do. It's funny. I wonder if this wasn't Genesis what what, what did you say it was their 8th studio album, 6th studio album, 5th, 7th, ninth, whatever. That would be 8th. 8th studio album. And this was just some other band, this brand new band that happened onto the scene in 1976. And this was their debut. If, if we would feel any different about it, because I, 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 what you're saying, Joe, is so right on with how I feel about this. Like there's almost nothing I can find about this that I don't like about it. But overall, it's just, it's to me, it's just, it's just an okay Genesis album. (laughs) And mm-hmm. it's just funny that I feel that way because there's there's a lot of great stuff on here. But I kind of, as I was thinking through this, I was like, it's almost like Peter Gabriel left the band, and and whatever tension was there, and whatever direction, like he was kind of dragging them, kicking and screaming with Lamb, as successful as it may have been, when he left, there's sh- there was just kind of this release. And I'll go with the standard disclaimer that I am in no way, shape, or form comparing myself to any of the members of Genesis. <laughs> but in any group that I've been with, and there's been a change in personnel, like usually at the very beginning, there is sort of this release and just like sort of achievement, immediate, like Im- the immediate chemistry that, you know, it's like when you're going on your first couple dates with a, with a, a new date, right? And, and then, like, after you go through a couple of those dates, then you got to kind of ha- figure out who this person really is and if you really want to spend more time with them, et cetera. And it, in the band, it's a similar thing. Like, after you get through that first thing, then you got to kind of figure out how it works. And I'm thinking through this, and I'm like, this is kind of that we hit that stage where now they got to kind of 
you know, really do it. Before it was just all adrenaline and, and the newness of having, you know, Peter not there. Now they have to kind of work through it. And to me, I'm with you. I think we've hit a plateau. There, there's been some tremendous growth. I think we kind of hit a plateau back in selling England by the pound. I hope that's not controversial to anybody. Um, you know, after Foxtrot, it just kind of leveled off to me. Mm-hmm. You know, we kind of expanded and grew and, and did a lot of cool things in the lamb. And then we continued that in Trick of the Tail. And now the next couple albums for me just kind of plateau. And I, and I, say all of this because I watched the interview on this last night and Mike Rutherford, he opened it up by saying, I think when we did trick of the tail, we were just, we, we didn't think about it. We just went in and did it and it was great. And, and in wind and weathering, we, we kind of had to figure out how we were going to do this without Peter. And I just started laughing because I was like, that's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. Well, and that totally so, fits you know, with the it, idea that, you know, it's almost like they should be flip flopped. Yeah, yeah, you know? it, it it really does, and you know, and from a you know the production, I think the production is really sweet. I think it sounds really good. But when Ken, when you name all those other albums that came out in this year, I'm like, yeah, I don't think it sounds as as good as that, or it's not as raw as yeah. as Left Overture. It doesn't have some of that, you know, just oomph that some of those other records do. It's really weird. Yeah, I, I find that. uh we we've satisfied the uh, the balance problem you know um tony is no longer twice as loud as hackett right um but joe as you described now it's almost a mush yeah 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 you lost some of the definition it's like each time they solve a problem they kind of make a new one i don't know how, why i feel that way but uh and and uh the beauty that comes with the brand x experience and then hack it is more into the nylon string acoustic guitar and he's going off into these more orchestral concepts and you'd think that merging that classical influence with the brand x jazz influence would be like some you know uh, celebratory cacophony, but rather it's kind of malaise the way they put it all together. Well said. Yeah. Poor Tom's going to fr- flay us for this. Did, did he send us any <laughs> notes? Yeah. Did he send us any notes? Like he, no. he would be losing his mind right now. <laughs> he'd, be, he'd be calling us all sorts of names. And, and like I said, I, I really, really, I want to, uh, to love this. I just, you know, it, and I don't not like it. I just, I don't know. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's true. Like, I think the only song on here that I'm just kind of like, eh, is your own special way. I mean, that's the only song that really kind of rubs me the wrong way. Um, not that it rubs me the wrong way, but it's just a six minute and 20 second single that, um, I think is, at, well, I don't have the remixed version. So to me, it's mixed very poorly and, and the, the, balance between the chorus and the verses are just way off it's not a good it's not a good song for the car but i think they just love mike too much we'll get to that song yeah yeah but i the the instrumental bits in this piece i mean the last three songs are are really quite something and um there is a lot of there is a lot of strong points to this but it is just kind of comes across as a sort of a gray 
I definitely agree. I I almost subscribe to the theory that all roads led to three-man Genesis. That was when they sort of achieved their their overall balance. And until they... Let's say something really controversial. Until they shed all the extra weight. Uh-oh. Wow. <laughs> Wowzers. And, and I say that with my tongue firmly in my cheek. Um, but, but no, and until they got rid of the pieces that maybe didn't fit quite right, the, the, the balance wasn't quite there. I could describe that in any number of metaphors. But, but the point is, once they become three-man Genesis and Mike and Phil are each doing two jobs and Tony just plays enough for two people anyway, and everyone seems to be happy. I yeah. wonder, Seconds Out uh, comes after this, right? Or, yes. Well, the EP comes after this, technically. The, the leftover material. It's just that they're, they're still making amazing live shows during this period. Oh, yeah. So I don't, I don't think this album reflects the live shows. The live shows are only getting better and better and better. It's almost like, I think Yes went through this, where every concert is just so explosive when they go back to the studio, they're just chilled to play easy listening music. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I haven't been paying attention, which wouldn't, wouldn't really surprise me or probably anyone. But up till this point, I don't know how much Phil Collins has been writing. It strikes me that he's not writing much here. And what he is writing is mostly instrumental. You know, Joe, you've often said all of this revolves around Tony and Tony's, you know, involvement. But if, if say Tony and Mike are the are the key guys, which I I think we can all say yeah, they're the key guys pushing the music along. This is their eighth album. I mean, how many albums does anybody have in them really before they start plateauing or whatnot? And really, from this point forward, it becomes the emergence of Phil Collins as a more complete songwriter and as he as he gets really more involved in the complete writing of the songs, we start to shift off the plateau and start to grow again and and do do cool things. So maybe that's part of the balance as well, right? Hackett is sort of kind of getting marginalized in his contributions musically compared True. to what, to what yeah. Tony's doing. Yeah. And then in a couple albums, and Phil starts to really bring some stuff, and probably it's welcomed more because tony and mike are also doing solo albums so they've got other outlets as well it's just fascinating uh, it, it's to hear them talk about it yeah they talk about it like you know this shit this is 1976 they you know they're they're just talk about it like whatever happened they're over it all and it's no big deal but it's it's fascinating to to really wonder what it was what it was like between between these guys well yeah, tony I, has been kicking ass since trespass um, For sure. I mean, yeah. he, he, even before that, you could tell he was dominant in a lot of those progressions in uh, Revelation. But um, he has really been pulling out everything he's ever learned and, and reconstructing it and, and, and writing it. And, and, and it's possible he's still the dominant personality, but some of his ideas are, are tapped at this point. Yeah. Well, I, I love the fact that, that Tony is such a dominating force. In such an understated way, he's he's not a Rick Wakeman, you know, with with his capes and his eighty five keyboards surrounding him. And I mean, he's he's not flashy. He 
rarely ever looks up when he's performing. He just, and I love the way he sort of always perches on the very edge of that stool. It's almost hmm. like he's half standing. It's, there's just so much about Tony that I find fascinating. Hmm. And, and he plays very, very interesting and intricate things that don't always sound that way. And I think this is part of the, the central charm to Genesis. I think, you know, to the point that you guys are making as well, the other, th- you know, as, the, as everyone does their solo albums and, the, and they get quote unquote tapped out, then that's, that's when they make the shift and they start writing all together. Yeah. You know, once they, they say, all right, it's time for a Genesis album. Let's get together and see what pops out. And that allowed them to do different things than they would have done otherwise. And to be fair, you know, we're saying tapped out the music on this. I think is fantastic. And the, and Tony is expanding his sound library. He's mm-hmm. doing all kinds of, he, he, he's, he's working it. I, I think maybe the, maybe the, the better way for me to say it, they've just kind of started to imitate themselves a little bit, right? Like, right. E- as good as it is and as, as cool as it is, it's like signals, right? Yeah. We've already kind of gone down this road and we're trying to do different things, but it's pretty much, you know, moving pictures part two. And well, what if, what I, 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 th- I think it's because it starts off overly complex. I, I think 11th Earl of Mar and One for the Vine have us feeling a little mixed and muddled. But if, if Tony's only contributions were all in a mouse's night and afterglow, you'd be like, yeah, that's my Tony. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, you're, you, I mean, I, I think 11th Earl of Mar is just wonderful. Wow. We're going to go through and gush over all these songs. All right, yeah, let's do it. Well, and, the album and, sucks. And, yeah, and, and, and I think that's exactly right. One of the things, there, there were a couple things that struck me over the last couple of days as I was knee-deep into this, trying to sort of prepare for this episode. One, I'm going to crap all over my own theory about perceived album order, because there are a couple of instances in here that, to me, and Paul, I think you said this in the last episode, but there are a couple of moments in here that just scream, you're going to do Duke. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a couple moments that foreshadow 90125. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because there, I think there are a couple of moments on this album where it's probably as close to yes as Genesis has ever gone. Yeah. Which, which I find it's to be fascinating. Froggy. Yeah. And then the, here's the other thing. Think back to the heady days of, of several months ago when we were knee deep into the overly emotional experience of covering Stephen Wilson. I made a huge point on the Raven that refused to sing episode about picking out all of the prog influences that Stephen was paying homage to or anything else. The one yeah. band I rarely mentioned in all of that was Genesis. And I think that's mainly because I wasn't at that point, I wasn't as familiar because it hadn't, I hadn't been that deep into the catalog in a long time. With this album, I now start to hear Mm. some of the things that if I did that, that Raven episode today, I would point to this album, uh, certainly for the Raven that refused to sing the song. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. It's funny that that when, you, when you're saying this, I was listening to Blood on the Rooftops earlier tonight while I was watching the Sixers game, 
And I was like, man, I, it would be so cool if this was produced a la oh, yeah. Refuse to Sing, right? You know, or, um, or the clock, uh, what the, uh, what the hell is the name of the song about the clockmaker? The, the watchmaker? The watchmaker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but Wilson's being deliberately retro. This is right. This, the retro. This, 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 this is, is the retro. source material. Absolutely. <laughs> and, this and, is the real thing. Yeah, and but you want the real thing produced like the remake. Yeah, okay. I want the uh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> cool. All right, so um, we've already started sort of getting into Eleventh Earl of Mars. So uh, let's let's dive right into that, guys. Well, I mean, the name of the album is English, and the name of this song is English. So we're we're getting really far away from the Americana Lamb stuff. Eleventh Earl of Mar is a grand musical piece based on the Jacobite Rebellion of 1715. Who the hell makes a rock song about the Jacobite Rebellion of 1715? Yeah. I mean, this is... You know who does? Mike Rutherford does. I, I know, it. and that's the freaking beauty of it, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I just... It's... It's such a wonderfully charming Genesis thing to do. That I just, I absolutely love it. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I really, really enjoy this song. I enjoy listening to Phil on this song, both singing and drumming. Mm. There are some funky overdubbed toms that sound like they're electric. The rototom sound. Yeah, the rototom sound yeah. like they're early Simmons drums or something like yeah, that. They're, but they're overdubbed. It sounds totally like they're overdubbed <laughs> over the regular beat of the snare. There's one passage round about the middle of that song where, like, doesn't Phil play that, that Phil, F-I-L-L, but just on the snare, like, in real time. It doesn't, that doesn't sound overdubbed. And I just... The snare, the snare doesn't, no. No, the snare doesn't. And I always think of it, it's, I always call it like a stutter fill with the way it sounds. And I just, I love mm. that. But... Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's very cool. It's just an interesting kind of choice, I think. The thing that's interesting about the lyrics, uh, because it is an interesting story to tell, but it's sort of told as uh, as a bedtime story, which is a little weird because I didn't, you know, like I was trying to figure out what the song was about, and they kept coming to "Daddy, Daddy, you promised," and it didn't really make any sense to me. Right. But I didn't really care because the I just the music is so good and it's just such a driving song and then around four minutes it gets to that breakdown the do 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 breakdown and it switches to guitar I'm just like yes <laughs> but I think it's a clever in a good way a way to go about telling this this kind of story and conveying the the story I love it I think one of the best lyrics is actually near the end um, bury your memories bury your friends leave it alone for a year or two. Till the stories grow hazy and the legends come true, then do it again. Some things never end. I just, I think that's mm. very cool. Mm. Mm. And that, that particular, that particular verse reminds me very much of, and then there were three as well. It's uh, you credit it to Mike, but uh, I see Banks first, then Hackett, then Mike. Um, so. I think somewhere on the internet I read that he penned the lyrics to the song. Neat. I don't know if that was in that interview or if it was on a, I searched 
wind and withering lyrics and I it had some information about it. So I think that's where I got I got that from. I, I think Tony and Mike are genuinely singing although they're not credited, but I mean I, I hear non fill things in the sides, you know? I think you're right, Ken. I'm sorry, I just want to interject here. According to Mike's book, he says my main contributions were Your Own Special Way and Eleventh Earl of Mar, which began with some quite grandiose chords that had given me an image of the Scottish Highlands. The lyrics were inspired by a story I'd found about a near uprising among the old Scottish clans. Beautiful. Okay. That's my problem with writing lyrics. I, I don't read enough good stories about things happening. In Scotland? And- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I always ask the question, did any of this stuff make it into the live shows? I mean, maybe beyond that initial tour. Have have we seen any of this stuff? I don't know if we've seen any of it, but I want to say that like Watt Gorilla had made it into some of the live stuff that came along later. Afterglow, I think, is... I'll have to check. I believe Afterglow is on both Seconds Out and another one. It might be Three Sides Live. Yeah, I think you're right about Afterglow. Yeah. Yeah, it's but on, these, it's definitely on Afterglow. <laughs> or it's definitely on Seconds Out. And then when we get to Three Sides Live, indeed, Afterglow is there as well. After the In the Cage medley. So, nice. Yeah, Afterglow was, was a big hit. Afterglow is, and, and I guess we'll get there, but it, I, that's something I hadn't really paid attention to until fairly recently. It's very interesting. Is bombastic the right word? A way to start the album? I mean, it just, you know, comes out of the gate and you've got this sort yeah. of monster, monster song, no pun intended, Paul, that you're yeah. just like, okay, wow, a lot going on there. Cause you've got it's sort still, of, it's still more civilized than the samba whistle that you never heard from the previous album. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, after, after we talked about that, I, I literally had to go back. So to listen to it to make sure, uh, and and I and when I heard it, I was like, "Oh come on! I can't believe I, I had never noticed that before. That's ridiculous." <laughs> it's just like, hey, there's a band director in the middle of Genesis, just like a <laughs> marching band director. So whistle. I don't. In this album, they have uh, the band director using a duck call in Divine. Uh, <laughs> so right, there you go. <laughs> you know, I I swear. Uh, yeah, Phil in this period's also got like a vibra slap and some just stuff that he yeah, he's got oh, yeah. out. <laughs> that takes us into one for the vine. This one's all banks. I want to say that I I he mentioned in the interview that this this was sort of like his gates of delirium. He walked in and banged it all out on the piano in front of everybody and I think he said something to the effect of I don't really know what they thought of it but they saw how excited I was over it and they figured, okay, we're going to have to work on this one. (laughs) (laughs) There's interesting stuff going on in here, but this is not one of my favorites on, and it seems like everybody likes it, but this is not one of my favorites on, on this album. I like this more than the next couple of songs. I get into 11th Earl of Mar for various reasons. Um, I think one for the vine sort of keeps me engaged a little bit. And then maybe I, I check out a little bit. It, it's a pretty serious piece. It, it, I mean, it takes a lot of work. Maybe it's just work I'm not willing to do after eight albums. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and and it's ve- it is very dynamic. And I I have to say, 
I've listened to this album a lot in the car. This one does not not work so well in the car with some of the dynamics that it that it has in it. So Yeah. You I, should try it on a run. It's kind of I big. should I should <laughs> I should get a car that actually is quiet when you drive down the highway. That would help. <laughs> nah. That's overrated, man. Ken, it looked like you were about you you were gonna say something. Well, I mean, I mean, let, let let's just reinforce this theme. I mean, these guys aren't great at creating albums beyond like, you know, Foxtrot being explosive. And, you know, we can always find a couple others along the way that we just personally love. But, you know, this is kind of a collection of songs and it's hard to say, yeah, man. Listen to Wind and Weathering, and it's just an album experience. It's like it's just a hobbled collection of songs. Well, and I think some of the songs don't... Forgive me, Tom. They're not as memorable as some other things. I mean, when you think about A Trick of the Tail, Squonk, A Trick of the Tail, Dance on a mm-hmm. Volcano, you know, the, the, the titles just roll right out. I mean, oh, yeah, that's yeah. a great song. Oh, that's a great song. One for the Vine. Who Who even remembers that? You know, mm-hmm. here's the the beautiful irony, right? Your own special way. The 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 hit song, the unexpected hit song. This is interesting because in his book, Mike does speak about you know this sort of being his first attempt at what you would call feeling lyrics. He was brought up in a in the British manner, and one didn't express themselves in this way. He had his 12-string guitar tuned differently, too. Yes, apparently he did. Which he claims he can't even remember what it was. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Not not that I've ever done anything like that. It's a bitch when that happens, man. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's going on with the guitars, because you've got Hackett doing the Hackett thing, but then you've got the motif, and it almost sounds like they're trying to do pedal steel... Yeah. Indicative of the Jerry Garcia licks in the Crosby, Stills, and Nash song. Do you know what I'm talking about? The teacher children kind of lick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, lick. exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So it, it works, but it becomes a little repetitive. And I'm, I'm sorry to say they needed another three or four days to like work these guitar things out so that yeah. like either it's all pedal steel or it's all hack it in. I find that little riff to be terribly annoying, and, <laughs> and yet it it becomes the most memorable part of the song, which makes it even worse for me. So it's it, it's it's kind of it's exactly what it sounds like, Joe. It sounds like it was an attempt at you know heartfelt song, you know, first attempt. Good good job, guys. Well, I, we'll I, give it a C, and we'll move on. You know, you say give it a C, but honestly, I. I resonate, the hopeless romantic in me resonates with the lyrics in the choruses. I think they're spectacular. That's nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have your own that's special what, way what, of holding. That what ma- I'm sorry. I was going to say, that's what makes it not a D. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's nice. Oh. But like you well, have your own special way of turning the world so it's facing the way that I'm going. Don't ever, don't ever stop. Oh, I just. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Well, I, I said earlier, I think they loved Mike too much. Mike came in, he had this, it was like a perfect first draft, and it was just beautiful, and they sat around and listened to it, and it was warm and fuzzy, 
and no one had the balls to edit this thing. Mm. And if you just would have played with it, if you just would have put it through the Genesis machine, it could have been one of those later hits. Yeah. So, Ken, mm. very, very interesting. Let me find the quote that I came across here just the other day as I was preparing for this, and it shows up in the Wind and Weathering section that I find fascinating. Hmm. Okay, here, here it is. And it's, it's funny because he's talking about the lyrics. And he says, um, you know, how they knew they would, there'd be a drop off with Pete. And he says, my lyrics mostly fell somewhere between those of Phil and Tony's. Phil's were very simple and Tony's were complicated. <laughs> he says, this is hilarious. Tony never did understand how to make words flow. His words are the reason why he'll never write a hit single, although sometimes you have to admire his bravery. And then he says something here which pisses me off. He's the only person who could ever get away with writing a lyric about double glazing and nylon sheets and have Phil make it work. I happen to fucking love the lyrics for Domino, so f screw off. Yes. Hear, hear. Um, but anyway. It's not, a, it's not a hit song, though. Right. In his defense. Sure. He says, but at that time, we didn't really allow ourselves to have any of these thoughts. It would have been too depressing. Neither Tony nor I look back very often. We both tend to operate in the now. And as the years went by, we got better at lyric writing, too. Although long after, we were able to be more honest about the quality of each other's songwriting, we still wouldn't comment on the words. So, you know, by Mike's own admission, they wouldn't call each other to the mat musically at this point. And I think That's that fits right in. It's interesting. Ken, did, did we ever... Did we ever look across at one another in Jay's basement? Or, you know, anytime we were, you know, together <laughs> and say, yeah, dude, that lyric's not it, man. <laughs> did we, I don't know that we ever did that. We just, well, I mean, I thought you were a fucking genius when I, we were growing up. I, you know, I never questioned a damn thing. For Noble Summer, uh, Chance and Runners Blind, I was like, God damn. How did he come up with this shit? <laughs> Oh, man. Chance and Runner is Blind was just a really weird interpretation of Highway Star because we had played that so much. And I just thought that if, 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 if I could make something that changed like the key kind of every four bars, that it would be fun. Yeah. That song was fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, yeah. So, you know, it, I, in your own special way, it, it got him on the map. And I think it's funny that, you know, Mike did it here, and then, of course, he'll do it again on the next album with Follow You, Follow Me. So I guess once he tapped into that wellspring, he kept going back. It's a good thing he did. That brings us to what, Gorilla? This doesn't really excite me. <laughs> oh, yeah? It's just it, it's just a Brand X tune that didn't make it on a Brand X album. Is it the is it potentially the, uh, the introduction paying homage to Soundchaser that... Uh, <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Thank you for bringing that up because while I don't know that that's exactly why, this is one of those moments, like I said, Genesis gets as close to yes as you're going to get. And and the, the sound chaser sort of ambiance I'm is, is, yeah, exactly. is part of it. That's yeah, it. absolutely. It's funny. I'm looking at the wikis and, and Collins describes Walt Gorilla as one of his favorite tracks on the album. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's his tune. It's his only contribution to the album. I mean, he did bits and 
pieces. Yeah, he got into Blood on the Rooftops and he got into In That Quiet Earth, but this is the only one where he's, you know, uh, first composer. I enjoy it's it is a little bit of levity in the midst of all of this really heaviness. I mean, if if this for me, if this if there's any levity in anything, it's 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 this particular song. I mean, there's even that little spinny whistle, the shoo in the. In the <laughs> um, I'm sorry. The, I, 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 I the, just kind of dig it. The Tom and Jerry song isn't levity enough for you. I I, I don't understand that song. I, I really don't. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, yeah, you know, I, okay, great. Shall we go on to the whimsy that is all in a mouse's night? It makes me pine for all, scenes from a night's dream. Yeah, right? Hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And it's, we all know how I feel about Genesis whimsy. <laughs> <laughs> now, I will say that this is a, a more palatable Genesis whimsy, but it is still Genesis whimsy. And, and what's really, really funny. Yeah. I mean, can I, I do the same thing. Every time I hear this, all I, I, my brain just starts playing scenes from a night's dream right next to it or over it mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Until the last lyric here. And, and, you know, here again, Peter Gabriel sort of pioneered this idea of character storytelling in a song. And now we're trying to do that without Peter Gabriel, and we wind up with Tom and Jerry. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck? Why? Ah! But anyway, so the most ridiculous line in the whole thing is, is the last stanza. There I was with my back to the wall, then comes this monster mouse, he's ten feet tall. With teeth and claws to match, it only took one blow. Dumbest fucking lyric I think I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) However, immediately after this, the instrumental section that finishes out this track freaking rocks. Yeah. I totally Mm -hmm. am into it. So I have this moment, like, most of the song kind of goes through, and like I said, I'm listening to scenes from a night's dream, and life's good, and whatever. I'm sort of, you know, dealing. And then you get this just, for me, egregiously annoying final verse. And and I'm like becoming actively mad because I can no longer ignore what's going on around me. And then they just sort of slide out on this great instrumental high. And it's like, okay, I'm not going to have to like, you know, go ballistic or anything. Mm. But it just, it, it's that dichotomy that just, it drives me crazy about this song. I mean, I seeing so. that, Tony wrote it in its entirety, music and lyrics. It's an impressive side of Tony. It just doesn't work for the album or the band like it needs to. Listen, if you're writing a song about Tom and Jerry, you're putting yourself out there for some criticism. (laughs) I think it's fair. I mean, who am I to presume? But, you know, whimsy for the sake of whimsy doesn't work. And... This, this to me is borderline that, if not, if not that 100%. For me, the album starts out good, goes through this middle section, which is perhaps less so. And then we get to Blood on the Rooftops, which mm. I didn't always love this song, but oh my God, do I love this song now. 
absolutely it it just it speaks to me at this point. I, I when this comes up, I'm like, yeah, I can't wait for this. Mike describes it in his book. There were highlights. Blood on the Rooftops, which Phil wrote with Steve, was one of Steve's best songs. Mm. Yeah. I mean, when Steve's on, he's amazing. Yeah, and I love you know, I love the I love the intro to this. I love the the lyrics to it. Um this is a song that sort of takes me places. Not least because they name a whole bunch of places later on in the song, but <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the the way it the way it feels and ah, I just I love it. If you're going to have limited input on an album as Steve maybe did on this one, how could they not put this on there, right? This is just, I find this one to be stellar. Yeah. Yeah, this is another one of those things. I, I think it was Timetable on Foxtrot where I, I found myself sort of marveling at the concept that was being talked about being a, a, every bit as relevant in 1972 as it, as it still is today, uh, some of the sentiment that was in that song. And I find it very similar in this song. I, I really enjoy the sentiment of the song because I feel like it's ex- exact, it's exactly how I feel. Like I don't want to watch the bullshit news of all the shit that's happening in the world. I don't want to get involved in that. I don't want to get in. And even some of the things he calls out in 1976 are still hot topics that we're, that we're avoiding today and, debating today so i to me that's just a little bit of brilliance here when it comes to comes to that i think it's cool Mm. so and and this is just me being dense as i'm wont to do so blood on the rooftops is an allusion to tv aerials is that correct tv aerials as in the old as the old aerials yeah yeah, because isn't yeah. isn't this all about you know the news yeah. and all the shit that comes in and it comes it used to come in from the antenna on yep. your roof. Yeah, my my reading on it was about it was basically a couple talking about how they didn't want to watch the news. They wanted to drink tea and think about other things and be happy. And I think that is sentiment is still very much, if not more so, because I have like fucking nine hundred channels of. Of TV to choose from, but it's not a line from a song. Sorry. Choose from, choose um, from, choose from. Roger Waters. I just, I just, I for whatever reason, it just marvels that in 1976 they can be singing about something that hasn't fucking changed all the way through 2019. That's crazy to me. That is, although no one but us old codgers know about. Aerials on the roof. <laughs> it's funny too. I just brought that up to some people at work the other day who were way younger than me. Uh oh. Talking about antennas. Yeah, that'll never go very well. I once made a a joke in a, in a meeting about a a Geritol commercial, and of course everyone stared at me like I had five heads. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> You know, incidentally, uh, according to Google, today is the 30th anniversary of the Internet, or I should say the World Wide Web. Mm. Have we plateaued? Now we get into the 
more prog Bill delivers it. What was Huge. that? Oh, oh, what just happened? That was weird. A World Wide Web after 30 years. <laughs> just fuck us over. <laughs> wow. What yeah. happened? We just had a bandwidth fart. Wow. Serious. <laughs> so, anyway, now we get into the the more prog of the instrumentals here. The Unquiet yeah. Slumbers for the Sleepers, dot, 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 and dot, 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 in that quiet earth. I haven't taken the time to try to figure out where the split actually is. I have two choices, and I don't think it really matters either way. I would have to bet that the split is probably from the f- the f- first intro sort of quiet, slow part into sort of the big bombast. But there's there's another part after that that could be the switch as well. I think where Steve starts to really shred his face off. I think mm. it's the, I think it's when the drums first kick in is yeah. where the split is. It's only like two minutes before the split. Yeah, yeah, two and a half. Yeah, I didn't think to actually look at the timing, but whatever. <laughs> you know, this is it's it's one of those things. It's it's a very weird title, and it's it's kind of a weird noisy song in some regards but it does kind of it kind of wakes you up and there's just something about the way this whole thing is constructed between the very strange titles and you've got this these two tracks and and uh afterglow that all kind of bleed into each other right so you just kind of enter this time warp and you never really know where you are It's, it's it's a little strange but it's very very enjoyable at the same time i mean it's you know, this to me is very much a a Genesis instrumental that I would want to hear. You certainly have Steve and, and Tony sort of interacting in the way that you would want them to on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I was reading earlier is that the titles come from Withering Heights. Uh, I've never read Withering of- Heights. Me neither, which which is why I needed to look it up on the <laughs> World Wide Web. But that's where the that's where the titles come from. I love it. I I mean, you could do track one and then just these last four, and I'd, I'd probably be pretty happy with this record overall. I'm driving in my car, and I'm like, wait, is this? Are they recapitulating stuff off of Trick of the Tail on this? Or or wait. Is that is that track one off Tales of the Topographic Ocean that they're recapitulating? I can't really tell. Ah. And and then they definitely revisit the eleventh eleventh uh, Earl of Mar, um, bits, and then they blow into what is sounds like the heavy solo section in Hearts from nine hundred one two five at some point in time. Yes. I'm like, wow. Okay. And then, and then, and then, this song goes right into Afterglow. It's almost like it's just one big song, right? Yeah, Afterglow. Yeah, yeah. the main progression of Afterglow is basically hearts. It's Mm. basically the the hearts melody and Mm. and the and the uh, chords. So that would explain why I love it so much. It probably (laughs) would. Yeah, yeah, definitely. My these last three tracks are my with track number one, my favorite parts of the album. Wow. Like I said, Afterglow, I don't know that I really hadn't paid that much attention to it. And then all of a sudden, it just like hit me like a ton of bricks. And I'm like, holy crap, this is spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 
the melody is beautiful. I think the way Phil sings it is beautiful. And again, the, you know, we, we just spent some time reading about, you know, Mike Rutherford bagging on Tony's lyrics. If this is all Tony top to bottom, which apparently it is. Yeah. I think he, he does great on these lyrics. These are spectacular. Um, you know, we, we talked about, you know, some of the, the, the chorus feeling on your own special way, but, but when I read something like, but I, I would search everywhere just to hear your call and walk upon stranger roads than this one in a world I used to know before. I miss you more. Mike makes a big deal about him writing, you know, an emotional heart on the sleeve song in, in your own special way. I think this is as emotional, as, as exposed, as vulnerable as that but in a much more passionate way. It's an interesting emotional song, love song, but you go a little deeper and you find it's post-apocalyptic. So it checks off the dystopian box of Prague. Right. (laughs) Really takes you places. It's post-apocalyptic, really. Is that where the, the dust that settles all around me, I must find a new home? Yeah, some of the fans think that this could be, uh, uh, post-nuclear war, different things. Interesting. So you're familiar with the place and you're walking over it and it's destroyed. The ways and holes that used to give me shelter are all as one to me now. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's got a lot of layers. Then the sun reflecting off my pillow, bringing the warmth of new life. But now that, I've lost everything. I give see, and it. This is funny. I can see where they would where they would talk about this, because then, then the sun reflecting off my pillow, bringing the warmth of new light, and the sounds that echoed all around me. I caught a glimpse of in the night. But now, now I've lost everything. I give to you my soul. The meaning of all I believed before escapes me in this world of none. No thing. No one. So, you know, yeah, you can totally read that both ways, right? Mm. It's like you start out in the dystopian world, and then either it switches where he's lamenting the world that was lost, or he's pledging himself to whomever. That's cool. Now I love it even more. (laughs) I I, I do like... I, I, I wish he came home to safety, like at the end of supper's ready. Everything's going to be okay. <laughs> but he leaves. He leaves us hanging there in the gray zone with the gray album cover. The meaning of all that I believed before escapes me in this world of none. I miss you more. Yeah, he's he's the sole survivor right here. There you go. There's nobody yeah. around. Wow. There you go. That makes this longing so deep. No wonder no one ever talks about it being a, an emotional song a la Your Own Special Way, because guess what? <laughs> <laughs> it's not. Yes, although, you know, it could also just be, you know, he's on tour and, you know, he's, oh, experiencing, the <laughs> he's experiencing isolation, you know, yeah. and he's in this world of none. But certainly, if you listen to this while gazing longingly at the album cover... The post-apocalyptic certainly does seem to resonate well. That is, and and, and, and I'm sorry, Joe. Oh. The album cover, to me, is this song. 
So the sleeve design is another hypnosis cover done by one Colin LG. So we need Tom to make us a graphic that takes wind and weathering, relayer, and grace under pressure, and just kind of merges them into one friggin' album cover. It's just like <laughs> a labor badass. Post-apocalyptic love. I love it. That is great. Good stuff. Yeah, so, you know, I think it, it sounds like Afterglow is is the, the gift that keeps on giving, requires more... Um, more work and more examination on our part to continue to uncover its mysteries. I love it. That is exciting. All right. So our apologies to our good friend, Tom, for not being as in love with this record as perhaps he is. I think he, it, we require a rebuttal from Tom. Yeah. Yeah. yeah may I read his, um, uh, he had a great line here. The only way you can get bored of wind and weathering is if you have a heart of stone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that any of us have said we're bored with it. No, I'm I'm not bored with it. Absolutely true. Not. Yeah, yeah. There's there are two Genesis albums I can sometimes become bored with, and one that I, the more I listen to it, the more I think it's kind of silly. But I don't get bored with yeah. this one. Right, right, right. I was fixated on obtaining this album before I had it. I've never regretted obtaining this album. I think I'm spoiled in this era by the next two records. Um, I think And Then There Were Three was, was one of the first what I'll call early Genesis albums that sort of captured my attention for whatever reason. And and you know, and I, I've said this every freaking Genesis episode. Duke just freaking blows my mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's my own bias, and and I totally get that. I'm very very happy for this album. There are certainly some things that I enjoy a lot of, about it. Sequentially, we're, we're we're approaching peak marijuana usage in the United States. <laughs> I don't know if that explains the you know the crowd at seconds out or the content on and then they free, but the graph is moving in that direction. I don't know that I would even say the words, this is the worst Genesis album. I don't know that I would rank it dead last in the whole catalog or in this era. It just, like I said, I think, I feel like as a complete band, as a complete experience, we've plateaued here. But this is my favorite album to, you know, talk bad about. Um, <laughs> Cause it's just, it's, it's still really good. <laughs> that, that's an interesting palaver episode. Albums we like that we enjoy talking bad about. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then we'll close this one out until next time when we start considering three man Genesis with, and then there were three. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we welcome your thoughts, input, comments, and feedback and questions. You can reach us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are at ProgPala on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're also welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is 
available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or whatever it's called today, as well as Spotify, and we are hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.